To walk afterward amongst the rubble with head held high, certain of having loved and served justice and men, to have held in love and caring anger, having lost the fight, yet held one's soul intact and still in tender faithful flame. To walk then amidst the rebel, held aloft by a salty sea draft, speaking of holding sorrow and joy together forever in the old cold breast of the world's depth. This week on the podcast, When Theology Hurts. We'll be listening to some stories of pain and frustration, disillusionment. If you've been hurt by theology or the church, you're not alone. And if not, this is your chance to bear one another's burdens. To empathize, to listen, to seek to understand. When I was in college, I joined by far the most evangelical ministry on campus quite by accident. As I was moving into my dorm, a staff member from that organization, a woman who ended up becoming a close friend of mine and my discipler, happened to walk by my room and strike up a conversation. I learned later that she didn't happen to walk by my room at all, and that her presence in my dorm on move-in day was a part of the strategy of this organization. In order to convert the largest number of students possible over the course of the year, they had to start by befriending the students who were already Christians on day one, and enlist them in their proselytizing campaign early enough in the year that the other students would still be relatively new and therefore vulnerable and spiritually open. I remained a part of this organization in some capacity for the entire time that I was in college, but I consistently pushed back on the emphasis on, and to my mind, the ineffective strategies for sharing the gospel, as they called it. As an introvert, I had no desire whatsoever to walk up to strangers and interrupt their mealtimes or their study groups or knock on their doors and read them a pamphlet about their potential eternal destination, but such was the strategy of this organization, and such was my role as a member. I communicated my distaste for this strategy to my discipler many, many times, and I felt deep relief any time our attempts at quote-unquote going sharing were thwarted by unopened doors or sometimes just pleasant conversations with friends of mine that didn't end with me sharing the gospel from the little booklet. As we'd walk through the dorm, I would obviously run into people I knew, and most of these people were not Christians. I would engage them in conversation and try to take back the reins whenever my discipler would steer the conversation towards the hyper-spiritual, but sometimes good spiritual conversations would occur. Generally, I would mostly listen and ask probing questions during these conversations, not so much to collect data that would help me zero in on which page in the booklet would be most suited to their particular existential questions, but just to learn about them and their history and their background. I really enjoyed these conversations, and frequently as they progressed, I would be asked about my own spiritual beliefs and experiences, which I would happily share. 
I don't think any of these conversations ever ended in a conversion, which was completely fine with me. It was less fine with my discipler and the other members of the staff. One day, during one of our meetings, my discipler came into my dorm room with a face that let me know we were going to be having a serious conversation. Not going to lie, I was pretty psyched that we weren't going to be going sharing that day, but I didn't know what she wanted to talk about, so I was a little bit nervous going in. I don't remember all of the details of the conversation we had, but I do remember her starting it by saying that even though God made us all unique with our different personalities, it's possible for us to sin within our personalities. We aren't allowed to use our personality quirks and our traits as excuses for our disobedience, which is what I had been doing by trying to avoid sharing and by turning what could have been concise gospel presentations into long-winded conversations that had ended with zero conversions. She shared that everyone feels nervous when they go sharing, She felt it even though it was her full-time job, but that we need to push through those feelings and be obedient to God because the stakes are really high. Then she opened her Bible to 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23 and prompted me to do the same. In this passage, Paul says that in order to save some, he became all things to all people. My discipler encouraged me to think about what this meant in the context of my personality. I might be an introvert, but the Bible clearly says that I need to become an extrovert in order to save my dorm mates. I may be a person who prefers long, deep conversations and who finds sharing the gospel from a tract ridiculous, but I needed to either change this or suppress it in order to be obedient to God. The message I received was essentially this. Yeah, God made you the way that you are, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an okay way to be. Sometimes God wants you to push down all of your feelings and preferences and opinions and just do the thing that the people who are in spiritual authority are asking you to do. This message struck me as incomplete and incorrect at the time, but I didn't feel like I was in a position to question or critique it because it was being shared with me by someone who was both a mentor and a friend. There were weird power dynamics present in our relationship, a strange mixture of friendship and spiritual authority, which made her gentle suggestions also spiritual directives, and it made our relationship really complicated. I often felt silenced and chastised because of this, I don't think that this person was trying to manipulate me or hurt me. I think she truly had my best interest in mind and thought that she was helping me become more like Jesus by communicating a hard but true message. What she probably didn't know was that this message would shape the way that I feel about how God viewed me, about how God views my anxiety, and about what God wants me to do with my life in some pretty fundamental and negative ways. The central message I got from this and other interactions was that if there's something that I enjoy— something that feels meaningful or pleasant, God does not want me to have it. My key takeaway was that God wants me to be constantly uncomfortable for his sake, that he gives us good things so that he can take them away, and he's constantly assessing our loyalty. This lesson was about pushing past my extreme discomfort, but that was just the beginning of a life spent pursuing discomfort for the sake of the gospel. It was a difficult message to push back on, and it was all the more difficult because it was communicated to me by someone who was a spiritual authority figure with the power of correct biblical interpretation. A couple of years ago, this person reached out to me and asked if we could meet up. We did, and to my surprise, she apologized. She acknowledged that she had spent a lot of our time together trying to get me to change fundamental things about my personality and my worldview, and that that was wrong of her. She had long ago stopped working for this organization and had been working through her own disillusionment. I appreciated the apology, but honestly, the damage had been done, and I'm still in a lot of ways working through the impacts of that bad theology and those poor interpretations of scripture.
I'm Nate Hansen. And I'm Tim Ritter. And we are Almost Heretical. In our last episode, we used the analogy of trickle-down economics to say that theology matters because our ideas flow downstream and affect people, for better or for worse. And we think we have a responsibility to pay attention to the fruit of our theology and to listen to those whom it affects, especially any who have been hurt by our ideas. Now, if you're tempted as you listen to these stories to say that these are simply cases of bad people misusing good theology, we ask that you stop and listen. Be open to the possibility that your ideas, especially your theology, may affect people in ways that you may have never imagined. Um, so here goes. I've attended evangelical churches for the past two decades and also worked in full-time ministry for a parachurch organization. And um, all these years, I've really struggled with feeling othered in these contexts, especially through the words and actions of church leaders. Usually I feel othered because of my Asian American identity, my chronic struggles with depression, um, my being single, female, and older, my more progressive stances on some policy issues, and the fact that I'm analytical and have a lot of questions about my faith. As the minority, I understand why the majority culture thinks and acts the way that it does, but I feel hurt that the majority culture doesn't seem to want to understand where I'm coming from, and this makes me feel like an alien in my own church community. This feeling of being alienated is triggered in many ways, some more obvious than others. In terms of my struggles with faith, I'm I'm really committed to this journey with God, no matter how heartrending it is. But because I've been open about my questions, doubts, disappointment, and anger with God, I've received a lot of judgment. Some people treat me like I'm a spiritual cripple. One pastor asked me why I still even believed in God, to which I responded, God's existence isn't predicated on my affection for him. One small group leader told me to stop taking communion because I wasn't in the right place in my faith because of all my questioning. Another person told me to just, quote, believe and overlook my questions. This type of response also applies to my issues with depression. I get healing prayer over and over, and I just didn't feel any better. But prayer ministers said that I was healed because they simply because they prayed for it, and I just needed to believe it. They blamed my intellect and my lack of faith for my lack of healing. Just always came down to there being something fundamentally wrong with me, my faith, and my brain. If I wasn't healed or faithful, it was simply my own fault. I've also struggled with being older, single, and female in the church. I've been told to just basically suck it up and devote myself to serving the church with all my spare time. A pastor's wife says to me that it was wrong to pray to God for marriage. It's biblical to ask for a job or for healing, but it is not biblical to pray for a husband. Uh, These are more obvious examples of being othered and invalidated, but there are a lot of microaggressions which constantly remind me that I'm not one of the majority, 
Microaggressions are by definition small, but they still hurt. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts. One small group leader told me proudly that she doesn't see me as Asian, thinking that claiming to be colorblind would make me feel more comfortable. Uh, another microaggression is when multiple people would unapologetically mistake the other Asian women at church for me, and um, even though these women really don't look or act anything like I do. And when I confided about not feeling like I fit in, a pastor invalidated what I felt by saying, quote, I think this is just in your head. You fit in just fine to me. So it sometimes feels like a constant battle to be understood, and it can be exhausting. So much of why I feel othered is because people have unwittingly used their leadership positions and authority in the church to invalidate my experience. However, on the flip side, there are times when I've seen church leaders exert their influence and authority to help me not feel alone in my journey. In response to a small group leader telling me not to take communion, my pastor's wife said that that person was ridiculous and to disregard her and to go ahead and take communion. I confided to a pastor that I struggled for a long time with disappointment and anger with God, and I expected this pastor to tell me that I was an unfaithful Christian. Instead, he commended me on my faith for enduring long suffering and told me that God was doing a deep work in me and empathized that um, he knows that very few people at our church could relate to what I was going through and that it must be incredibly lonely. With respect to desiring marriage, a pastor helped affirm that it's not unbiblical to pray for a husband, and in fact, he and the other elders understand how so many people at our church struggle with singleness and that they're all actively praying for us for marriages. In terms of being a racial minority, I was so grateful when an older white male leader in our ministry publicly repented and apologized for how he and our organization may have abused white male privilege all these years and alienated the ethnic minority staff. So with all these examples, the takeaway for me is that for as much pain and alienation that the church has unintentionally inflicted through its power and influence, at the same time, there's a real opportunity for the church to use this authority to heal, redeem, and build up its body of believers. I still have a little faith that I can find a remnant of people whom I can call my family. Hey Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was, because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
Just a warning, parts of this next story are not appropriate for children. Hi, Nate and Tim. My name is Sam Keen. I'm 35 years old, originally from Indiana, but now happily residing near Anchorage, Alaska. Um, first of all, when I was a child, um, really, there were not any background checks or a two-nursery worker system or even um, a system of uh, check-in and check-out for child care. And that made uh, molestation of me as a four-year-old possible. And it was like the, the church was, was really blind to that, especially, you know, in the 80s in which I was a young child. And, and even up until probably maybe 10 years ago. Um, that sort of thing just didn't happen. Um, and that has led to a lot of people being hurt. Um, teaching spanking as the method of child rearing for really every parenting challenge that a believer may face while raising a child. Um, in other words, reliance on spanking for every child rearing challenge. Um, I can't stress enough how medical studies show what damage this does to uh, physiological brain development, literally stunting formation of gray matter, not to mention causing a wide range of psychological and cognitive problems later on in life. The spanking is done very early on uh, because they view the child as willful from birth, but you and I know that a child really doesn't even have a, a frame of reference uh, to be willful against uh, when they are infants that young. Um, you know, but these people will teach that children need to be spanked until really they're married. Um, I, I know personally people who were, I'll call it abused, uh, assaulted instead of spanked all the way up until they were 24 years old. Um it's sickening. It's it's just totally perverse. But um, they view someone not as an adult until they are married. Um, uh, there's an isolation that comes from uh, these churches, and and that isolation is driven by a, a fear of the world and from spiritual pride that leads them to look down on both new Christians and believers that are not from their associations and fellowships. Um, and they even look down on families within their own churches that have kids in the public school instead of uh, their sub-sectarian Christian school or Bible college. Um, they seem to purposefully avoid the subjects of grace and love or even downplay them um, by ignoring context and proper interpretation of passages. So when you couple that with no biblical theology, this practice, and with an emphasis on personal sin hunting uh, or crisis creation, one becomes used to feeling guilty every Sunday. People actually become addicted to being told how much their shame um, they need to feel before God will forgive them. 
And that kind of thinking was almost heresy to speak in the Baptist uh, subsectarian world through which I was raised. But what really made me consider walking away from the IFB was what I experienced um, as I went through their Bible college and seminary system. I saw firsthand the rigidity and exacting nature of them, their church politics and scheming, the fraudulent power projections, the sloppy registrar work in the college, just terrible ethics and infighting, and even the psychological gains and law-breaking that was done by leaders uh, to either exert their system of disciple-making or to keep the machine operating. I was not okay with all of that. And because of some of the really harsh criticism and treatment by uh, a missions director in 2009, I became suicidal, and I acted out in a way that ensured I would be sent back to the States. It was uh, really scary to walk away from that whole uh, IFB world because I knew I'd be alienated by all my professional and personal contacts. So in very real ways, it was almost paralyzing uh, to my hope um, to leave the isolationist bubble I spent 27 years in. I had to work through heaps of inner damage and practical limitations. So to be fair, I have only ever officially worked alongside of people with a predominantly fundamentalist evangelical background. So maybe I should say I've resigned from fundamentalist evangelical professional ministry. But I also know that some of the things I've talked about are common within all churches. Since letting go of uh, the positions and the official roles, I have felt both relieved and frustrated. Relieved because I am not part of the monster, but frustrated because the Western corporate church monster is seen as normal to most Christians and Christian leaders today. This last story is from Tyler and Julia, and they sat down and helped each other process through their own rocky journey in church. Okay, so I'm Julia. I'm 31, and I live in San Francisco with my husband, Tyler. That's me. I'm Tyler. Um, Been married to Julia for 10 years almost, and um, last six have been here in San Francisco. Yeah. And we're going to interview each other. Because we've attempted to talk about what we think about the church and why it's a tricky subject for us. And we have rambled on for we just way too long. talk for um, hours about it. It's, uh, so we're going to try something new. Do you know the questions I'm about to ask you? No. <laughs> I know, I'm just I'm saying that for the purpose of this. So... And and I think it's exciting to do this because we don't have exactly the same opinions or experiences. 
Do you want me to start and ask you my question first, or would you like to ask me a question first? No, I want you to go first. Okay. Does that mean ask first? Ask me the question. Okay, so my question, number one, if you could pick one story or issue that summarizes your feelings about the church and your experience with the church, uh, what would it be? And I would put the caveat, recognizing that it doesn't encapsulate everything, Mm -hmm. but if you had, you know, we have a limited amount of time, so... What would you kind of draw out right away? What would you want to share? I mean, there are so many stories um, that it's hard to pick one. When I was uh, about, when I was 20 years old, 19 years old, I think, I was uh, working as an intern for the same church that I went to in high school and um, working with, like, the youth ministry programs there. And... Um, uh, the youth pastor at the church was a good friend of mine, um, and we were really close. Um, some stuff kind of came out that had, he had done some bad decisions that he had made in college, and uh, nothing like crazy, nothing crazy substantial, but like just some weird choices that he made in college. And the way that the church reacted to him and the way that the church treated him uh, was super eye-opening for me. He was fired and was given very little voice to to speak for himself, and it just really felt like at the time that the church was a lot less interested in this guy as a human and as an employee and as a friend, and was a lot more interested in making sure that they could continue to fill the seats on Sundays. And it was really an eye-opening moment for me to see this kind of political system at work in a church, which is, at the time, I was very naive in the sense that I didn't think that that existed in the church. I thought that things were, were, I don't know, church was like kind of this infallible thing for me. Mm -hmm. And this was the first kind of blemish on church where it really, in a way, kind of sent me into a a bit of a tailspin. Um, So it's sort of that place that you started questioning from and it seems like maybe you go back there yeah even now it, it's it's not even really the the biggest or craziest story that I could tell at all um from all of my experiences that I've had but it was the first one and it, I think like an it was for sure the one that kind of started any deconstruction that I have have had my question for you is extremely similar to your question for me. (laughs) Uh, I think it would be good maybe if you wanted to tell a story of a time that wasn't even just maybe like a bad experience, but something that kind of affected you long term, longer term, you know, something Mm -hmm. that was uh, maybe caused you to kind of deal with some bigger things or, or carry some, some pain around a little bit from, from that experience. It's funny because the thing that comes up is not from a, one of the churches that we were ever really closely involved in, per se. Um, it was sort of a series of paper cuts when we moved here to San Francisco. Mm. And I felt like the community we were in, Boulder, it was an amazing time of people really helping me find a voice, literally singing, literally be- like believing that I had something to say. I I didn't ever perceive that, and, and it was really it's funny because I would, you know, for my profession and for everything I love to do, having a voice is like something that's very meaningful to me. So I found it in Boulder and largely through our church community, which I think 
is to me I think of those friends and those people that are still so important in our lives mm-hmm. less than the church that we were affiliated mm-hmm. with. But when I got to San Francisco, the thing that that kept coming up was the fact that I was a woman and did my husband want to teach? Should woman should woman should women have much to say? There weren't any female leadership um, in either of the churches we went to when we were here, and even in the smaller community church that we tried for a little bit, and I think we were really excited about on, on the front end. The first day, um, it came up that you know the pastor wasn't sure the role women could play in a church, and I just I feel so sad, and I think I felt really bruised for a long time that my being born a woman. Being born the person that I do believe that I was like intended to be, that God has helped me become, you know, my faith uh, as a Christian has empowered me in, was wrong in these settings. And I have had a really hard time because that attack on your identity is painful because you sort of end up in this place where you're like, well, are they right? And I am, I am made wrong and my desire to be um, outspoken or my desire to ask questions is inherently wrong just because I'm a woman. I've, I've really struggled with that. Yeah, totally. And it's not, it, nothing painful, nothing is just like paper cuts, you know, just kept coming up. Yeah. I don't have children and that for me always made me feel like I was less than in some of these communities and it was really surprising for me to get there. Yeah, so it's... Uh... You say death by paper cuts. I feel like you're... What, what you mean by that is like... Um, Don't mansplain me. Yeah, I know. It's just, you can ask if... <laughs> I say death by paper cuts because it's what I mean, but is there a way that you would... Like, what What does it also make you think of? Well, yeah, what do you mean specifically when you say death by paper cuts, I guess? like. Well, it's not um, like anyone chopped my hand off. Mm-hmm. No one said... I was bad, or I, I didn't have, no one abused me, no one stole money from me, no one did those, I mean, and definitely I've been close to those situations, but the thing that really bothers me is that it was just a lot of reminders that I wasn't enough, like, I, you know, that concept of, like, well, you know, God was a man, so hmm. women are the helper, mm-hmm. and women are really great at baking cookies for a small group, but really the man should be leading in prayer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, women can lead children's ministry because babies, you know, don't need true transformation. But, you know, you're never going to have an ordained female pastor. You know, that kind of stuff is just like my, my little brother over Christmas was like, I think that you've had such bad experiences in church because you'd be such a good pastor. And I was like, wow, a young child in a Christian school thought that a woman could be a pastor. I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I didn't even ever think that. I don't think that way. And that for me, I mean, as a size normative, white, middle-class, privileged female. Imagine how anyone else feels. So that's the, that's the like, pervasive experience I've had that yeah. just makes me feel like I'll never fully be able to embrace the church as it is and my identity as I know myself. So I think in our marriage, we don't have that kind of typical you know, sort of Christian gender role marriage, <laughs> you know, um, those just aren't the roles that we, that we have for each other in the marriage. Like I don't, you know, um, yeah, we uh, tried. Uh, yeah, we tried because <laughs> like we, we, felt, we felt like we had to. Um, but that's certainly not 
you know, you're, you're more outspoken. I, I'm less comfortable, you know, maybe leading a conversation with a group of people or like, like leading prayer in front of people. You're a lot more comfortable with things like that. Um, and, you know, I just thinking like, you know, how has our marriage and our relationship to each other affected the way that we've been able to fit into church and, um, or kind of our experience in church? I always think, like, thank God I married you, because I think I would have been persuaded to get married young, no matter what. And I am so grateful it was you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because you don't have that machismo perspective. Like, you're pretty amazing. You never really bought that. And that, thank God, you liked the parts of me that didn't fit the mold and vice versa. And you know, I I just I love the fact that like you could build a table and then bake a cake to put on it. <laughs> like, I think that's super fun, and I I think you know what a what a disaster would have been if we felt like the only contribution that we had together would be by fitting into this like Susie homemaker, you know, Don Draper. Yeah. Life. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think in two ways it's been. Um, important, like, or substantial, I guess. I, I think, you know, we, we when, um, when we've been going to church or when, when, you know, we've been active in church, I think it's put a uh, weird kind of pressure at times on our relationship. And I think we were pretty good at kind of ignoring it, but I think it just was there. Like the pressure was there. And I think that in the, in the years that we haven't really been active in church, we've been free to be ourselves with each other. And Mm -hmm. I think that, that, um, our relationship has benefited from that, um, a lot. There's no anxiety of like, should I be doing this instead? There's a lot more like, what can we do together? And I would say that when we have been going to church, um, and tried to be in community with other people that were buying into this more kind of traditional gender role, marriage Maybe in the Christian church. that's naturally how they were, to be fair. Okay, fine. But what I'm saying is, like, um, I feel like we've felt, like, excluded. Like, that, yeah. we, that we didn't belong. So it's I'm not trying to yeah. make it about them. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> yeah. us being ourselves around these uh, other people that are a little bit more traditional in these gender roles things that's has true. really made us feel like outsiders. I mean, truly almost down to, like, Ladies, the men are going to go have cigars now. Yeah. Which is, I don't want to smoke cigars, so it's fine. But it's also just like, really? Is that? Yeah. Is that a, do we have to really divide out that way? All right. Your question. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe your perspective today? Meaning like, are you still deconstructing? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you think about, how do you, what's your perspective on church and faith? Sure. So, you know. I think um, church for me and my Christian faith has been uh, a struggle for for most of my twenties um, and even um, and even probably a lot of my early thirties. Um, I'm feeling better and better more recently. Um, I think that I spent a lot of my twenties and my thirties really in kind of a heavy deconstruction. The word deconstruction, I think, actually doesn't quite fit for what I have experienced. I think that 
I look at deconstruction sort of as like, um, as like pruning almost. Um, and you know, you know, you need to be able to, if you have a tree in your yard, you need to be able to prune it and to cut off certain branches and twigs and, and whatever leaves from the tree so that it is able to grow more healthily and, and, um, it, you know, trees need space to grow. Um, so, so you have to prune them. I think in your spiritual life, that's a very healthy practice to be able to be good at. Um, and for me, that's kind of how I view deconstruction a little bit. Mm. Unfortunately, for all of the years that I was kind of in this phase, um, I didn't really have a good support for it. Um, there's not a lot of space in the Christian church, the American church, to do this, to right. question things and to doubt things and to, you know, feel uncomfortable about things. It's just, you know, it's not been my experience that that's an okay really thing to do um, in a church community for the most part, you know, speaking generally. And so um, I've had to do a lot of that in isolation and a lot of that in in, in loneliness sort of. Um, and I think that when you're pruning the tree, you probably often just start with some some shears and um, you know cut a few branches off and, and see how it feels. But I felt like for me it was not long before I had a chainsaw in my hand and was just chopping huge you know <laughs> limbs off the tree um, that were important uh, important to the to my growth. All that to say, I guess I feel like a lot of the deconstruction happened quickly. Um, and, uh, and, and hastily and probably a long time ago, the biggest process has been kind of like trying to nurture my spiritual life back to health a little bit. I feel better at that, about that getting into my mid thirties. And, um, I think finally finding some community and some, and some friends and, and, and whatnot that, um, are comfortable in that same place and are comfortable allowing space for someone to, question things and doubt things and it feels I feel a little encouraged now for whatever reason it seems like our generation is maybe starting to become a little bit more open to um to that uh, type of thing so um you answered my third question oh good it was what gives you hope or do you have hope <laughs> sounds like something does <laughs> I have hope um you know just adding on to what I just said like I think I think that I think that in a lot of ways the American church is designed to make people feel comfortable <laughs> and a lot of that comfort is becoming harder and harder to to feel um just with things like Trump being elected and just a lot of the like kind of big social issues that you know the the American church the evangelical right or whatever like yeah. they've sort of taken pretty hard stances on some of these things for a long time and I think our generation is kind of coming to a tipping point with a lot of those things. And I find that really uh, hopeful because I think there seems to be a little bit of momentum around the idea that like maybe church isn't, maybe we, maybe we kind of set some of this stuff up wrong and um, maybe, yeah. maybe we, uh, this is a leaning tower of Pisa. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> get back to the foundation. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, there's more emphasis on thinking for ourselves and, and, and stepping into church in this modern day. What does that look like and how do we love each other and how do we um, really be the body of Christ to each other? And I think maybe that has less and less to do with like the, the walls that we're surrounded by, you know, the church building that we're sitting in. Um, or the label. More, 
more just like the people that we're with and um, and the conversations that we're having and the things that we're doing with other people. Um, yeah. So that's actually kind of similar to my last question for you. Is there any resolution to your to your view or, or hope would be another good word like um, to your view for church and yeah um, yeah yeah my resolution is sort of this minimalist perspective that I've mm-hmm. shared I won't have a faith of checklists and anytime anyone has questioned my salvation mm-hmm. I think my favorite thing to say to them is well if you're the judge probably not <laughs> like I'm not saved if you're the one who's asking um but I just, God is so real to me. The, the the thing that I tried actively to shake as college student was this idea that there is a God that loves me. And I think I always come back to that. There is a God that loves me. And I believe the gospel. Um, but I believe it with just kind of owning the fact that I don't understand every aspect of it. And I kind of have a minimalist expectation of how much of it has to be literally correct. And so I think the resolution for me is, like, I know that I know that I'm right with God. Like, that whole, like, Sufyan, get real, get right with the Lord. That's my job. And it's really no one else's business but me and the Lord. And I'm happy to be stretched and challenged to share it with others, but I think of, like, I think you need to talk about like a witness. I'm not evangelical, I guess, anymore. I think that that is a resolution. I don't identify as evangelical and that just cuts off so many criteria and it cuts off so many labels. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not ashamed of what I believe, but I am, um, I consider myself more of like a witness sitting on a stand. <laughs> I'm not there to tell you everything about your life. I think that God refuses to be boxed up and I refuse to be the person who tries to box God up. And I'm like to the point where I can't even assign gender to God anymore. You mm-hmm. know? Um, and yeah, so I, the resolution for me is that I, I still, if anyone asks me, like I will share my heart with them, but I also am not a marketer anymore. I don't have, mm. I don't have anything to sell them. And I, I love them. And I think that God will get what God wants in the end. And if I can be part of that, then I am. That's my resolution right now, I guess. Yeah. This has been a great conversation with you. We talk about this stuff a lot, but it was really interesting to hear. Kind of, like, I liked I liked this format. It was my idea. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I liked it. Yeah. All right. We're at 25 minutes, so. Good luck. Thanks, bye! So, that's all the stories we're going to share in this episode. Sincere thanks to everyone who shared their stories with us. Thanks for opening your lives to us and letting us journey with you. The rest of this podcast is going to be a guided reflection practice. We said at the beginning of the show that a part of why we share stories and tell our own stories is so that those who have experienced similar things, especially similar hurts, realize and remember that they're not alone 
they're not crazy, to feel solidarity. And another reason is for those who haven't shared pieces of our stories, who don't know what it feels like, to begin to listen and be able to empathize and begin to understand. Stories actually can build bridges across chasms between people. But there's a third reason to be brave and share stories about the way theology hurts. And that is that some people still hold theology and teach theology that still hurts. And these stories can be a gift to you to open your eyes to see what can be really hard to see or painful or scary to come to terms with. And a key part, if that's you, of how you can honor these stories and bear one another's burdens is to take an honest, open, critical look at your own life, your own ideas, your own practices, to be willing to see if there are any ways that you may have been hurting or may still be hurting others with your thoughts, your ideas, your words. So, no matter where you fall, you're welcome in this space. We hope this reflection exercise is fruitful. This is the end of our time on the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Kale Haugen for producing most of the music on the show. See you next week. Theology can hurt. Ideas about God are messy. Religion is power, and people love power. And people often use it to abuse. The vulnerable are taken advantage of. Children are violated. And two, accidents happen. Good people make mistakes along the way. Life is trial and error in real time. Our failures never happen in a vacuum. We wound and we are wounded. Scan the contours of your unique, precious life. Where is there injustice? Where is there hurt? What would it take to make things right?
You can be made whole. You can make things whole. Darkness can turn to light. Healing is real. It's not a myth. What small step must you take next? It's okay to be afraid. To fear is to be human. But you are infinitely bigger than the phantoms that haunt you. Where is there fear? Try to locate the source of your trembling. What are you afraid of? Imagine being brave. Picture standing up to those fears with a smile and a giggle. Imagine courage. Put on the confidence of perfect humility. What brave words must be said or unsaid? What must be done or undone? <laughs> 